Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. George Monbiot is an absolute totemic figure of the left, of left-wing journalism, progressive journalism, an incredible campaigner. And as I'll as I'll say when I talk to him, uh, someone who's had a profound impact on me and, and other, a whole generation really of younger writers, uh, from the climate emergency to the history of British imperialism uh, to critiques of the terrible unjust order that currently prevails. I mean, he's just... You know, he he has many different hats, and his columns are always exceptional. Um, so it's a huge pleasure to speak to him, and we cover a lot of ground from the climate emergency, capitalism, um, uh, fish. Would you believe uh, uh, British imperialism? You name it. Um, as ever, do support us on Patreon.com forward slash ownjones eighty four to keep the show on the road, or use the support function. Um, please do give us those five stars to encourage other people to listen to the podcast Um, and do subscribe and with that said and done here's me chatting to George it's a massive pleasure to be joined by the one and only George Monbiot now I don't normally serenade my guests with praise at the beginning uh, but I like to make exceptions when they're deserved and George is someone for I, I like to say younger. I'm now 36. So I'm not sure I can get away with that. But when I was, uh, for a, for those of us who came of age in, in the 90s, uh, George was a, a life raft, I would say, in a pretty politically desolate time. It had a big impact on young, aspiring progressive journalists like myself, an incredible author, writer, journalist, so many different talents, so many different uh, areas. We'll talk about some of them. But it's a massive pleasure, massive honour to have you with us. Thanks so much, Owen. Well, look, it, um, all of that back at you. Um, no. You know, you've been an incredible guiding light, and so thank you. Yeah, and it says uh, great to be chatting. We we don't do it nearly often enough. We do not. We do not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Well, look, I want to kick off actually something just something I think about uh, a fair bit, and what I just alluded to, I suppose, which is being a radical campaigning journalist in the British media ecosystem. Do you have any kind of general thoughts about that in terms of the challenges of that, the, you know, the, the, the odds stacked against you, mm. the, the, the env- how challenging an environment it is to yeah. be a dissenting journalist in the landscape in which we both inhabit? Well, there's definitely a sense of being behind enemy lines. And, um, and there are very few niches that we can occupy. I mean, I'm, I never wanted to be a print journalist. It's a sort of, you know, that that was my second choice. I, I My intention always to be was to be a broadcast journalist. And, and I started at the BBC having 
basically beaten down their door saying, look, you don't have any investigative environmental program making. I want to come in and do this. And, and eventually was given the job with the words, you're so fucking persistent. I'm giving it to you. <laughs> um, and, and for about two years, I had this amazing time. This was um, between 1985 and 1987, where the BBC really had this strong investigative attitude. We're going to go and get the bastards. We're going to expose malfeasance and then thatcher launched her coup at the beginning of 1987 forced the res resignation of the director general alastair milne and basically destroyed the organization overnight and my boss came in the next day and he said no more investigative journalism and i said sorry what and he said yeah no more investigative journalism i said but 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 what you're saying effectively is no more journalism because if it's not investigative it's not really journalism is it and he said well look you know, don't blame me. That's just, it's come from the top. And, and the BBC has never recovered. I mean, it's never got back to the pretty amazing organisation it was then. In fact, it's just got worse and worse. And so I, I went off and did my own thing. And from time to time, I came back to the BBC and said, look, you know, will you take this proposed radio series, this proposed TV series, you know, and sometimes work for months with some brilliant people in developing treatments. And we were literally shouted out of the offices of controllers. You, you know, there was one occasion where the controller of BBC Two, he, he looked at the treatment and he said, is this environment? And, 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 and the producer said, yes. He said, I've been trying to get environment off this channel for the past two years. Why the fuck are you bringing me environment? <laughs> and another occasion, you know, after we worked for months, you know, quite a team of us on what I thought was a really great proposal. The controller looks at it and says, uh, Monbio, fuck off. And they're like, they're like emperors, these people. You know, they're just sort of like sort of, you know, with a flick of the wrist. All right, we dismiss that. Just fuck off. Literally, that's what they say. And, and it's like, and the only difference now is that they reject my proposals politely. In 30 years, I've never had one accepted by the BBC. <laughs> and so so you can see, like, you know, so so what do you do? Well, you have to become a print journalist. There's just no possibility of, of surviving in that environment. And what I saw, particularly with, with environmental filmmakers, because it's hard to believe now, but in the mid-1980s, there were loads of environmental programmes on the telly, and some of them were really good. But all of them lost their jobs, lost their contracts. Some of them lost their livelihoods, lost their houses even. Um, there was a massive destruction of expertise and it's never recovered. And now there's this sort of pale attempt to start doing a bit of environmental programming. But, you know, nobody who knows how to use a camera has got any deep experience of environmental program making because everyone was purged. Mm. And it was, it, it was this sense that, you know, we have this feeling in this country that, you know, you can say what you like and within certain limits, depending on who you are, broadly speaking, you can, but you're not going to get heard. You're not going to get a platform unless that what you're saying aligns with a very particular and narrow agenda. And and in, as far as mainstream media is concerned, basically it's a guardian or nothing. There's just nowhere else I could do what I'm doing. I mean, I'm interested in this before obviously talk about not well i mean is it introspective but it's, it's interesting i think because because it's something which lots of lots of people on the left have to navigate through i mean which is 
you know, I suppose what's the function of journalists like ourselves in that, you know, one critique is that we are fig leaves, that, you know, the media is, uh, you know, whether it in its conservative or more liberal incarnations, that itself being relatively peripheral in the British media ecosystem, unlike other countries, that it essentially defends the status quo. And then you get the odd dissenting journalists, uh, which allows the media uh, environment to say, well, actually, look how pluralistic we are, mm. and that therefore people like you and me, we're just we're just fig leaves. I mean, mm. we, I'm not going to name where that. Is. <laughs> is I crazy. know where it comes from. I'm not going <laughs> to give them this satisfaction. But that is a critique we both. I know we get. We both get it because we're uh, both tagged into it. What What's our response to that, or what's your response? Mm. Well, I mean. You know, we, we've got to take all criticism seriously and look at them hard and 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 decide is this really what's happening here? Um, and you know, there's no, no question that you know the Guardian doesn't always live up to what I want it to be. Um, it's a pretty broad church, a bit like the Labour Party, really. There's some <laughs> some aspects of it where I think, yeah, that aligns with what I believe, and others where I think, what? <laughs> but you know, that's it's a big organisation. Um, Am I in there to try to defend the reputation of The Guardian? No, I'm in there because it's basically the only possible platform with any kind of reach um, and any kind of backing which which, which I can get. Now, you know, we nowadays are seeing a proliferation of alternative media which are really doing quite well. So I work quite a lot with Double Down News now, and I think they're a fantastic example of how we can sort of break the monopoly of the mainstream broadcasters. And there's lots of other good examples. I mean, Byline Times, Open Democracy. There's a great proliferation of, of really great sites coming online. So so maybe, you know, in a few years' time, it won't be necessary to, to say, right, it's this platform or bust. But at the moment, you know, if you want to try to change things and if you want to try to reach very large numbers of people, then it's very hard to see how you can do that outside one of those mainstream media platforms. Um, and given that all the others are effectively close to us, well, you know, that's been my experience at any rate, um, then, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll stick with writing for The Guardian, which, frankly, has been very good to me. You know, I've, I've, I propose every week what I want to write about. Very rarely in my whole career have they ever said no. And when they have, it's generally for an administrative reason, because somebody else has written a very similar article or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I've never felt censored. Occasionally, I've felt that in the past, the editing was occasionally a bit heavy on one side, but that seems to have passed. And, you know, I, I feel that sense of freedom and independence to write about stuff which just isn't in the rest of the media at all and aligns with no media's agenda not even the guardians you know it's like it's not that the guardians hostile to what i'm writing it's just that it's not part of what anybody's talking about or thinking about i mean what i've been reading about today has been um um cavities in old trees and how the different species of woodpeckers make different sizes of cavities um and and the extent to which that cavity making is dependent on fungi or not now I don't think this aligns negatively or positively with anyone's political agenda, but it turns out actually to be quite important. Uh, 
to an understanding of our own ecosystems and what they're missing. So it's not like, you know, no one at The Guardian is saying you must write about um, cavity-making woodpeckers or you mustn't write about cavity-making woodpeckers. It's just not on the agenda, mm. unsurprisingly. Now, you've been a pioneer when it comes to the climate crisis and you were writing about it when it was way, way down the list of even, I mean, we'll talk about this, uh, you know, even rhetorically, mm. um, you know, even regardless of substance, rhetorically taken seriously in politics and in, in the wider media. So I suppose what I'm wondering is throughout your career campaigning, as you've done consistently on that issue, how far have things come in terms of public consciousness? And it's interesting, I think, obviously, there's a generation element. I think Generation Z, the younger generation, will save us all if it's not too late. Um, and how far are we still to come? I mean, when you, when you look at the kind of, you know, taking a big, long view, a long view throughout your career, how far have things come, but maybe how things have to go in terms of public awareness, consciousness, and the way the conversation, at least on the on the level of rhetoric, at least has has shifted. Yeah, well, I've I've seen a, a, a cycle of interest and then collapse of interest. So in the mid nineteen eighties, green issues started taking off. By nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety, they'd gone completely. Nineteen ninety two, there was a bit of a fillet with the Rio summit. It came back, and then there was a real sort of bleak period for whew, it must have been up to the early 2000s where scarcely anyone was talking about it i mean a bit with kyoto in 1997 but then and then again with obama 2008 2009 it hit the agenda again but then it disappeared again and this keeps happening and every time you think ah oh, finally this is this is a moment. This is when it's going to be mainstream. This is when it's going to be put at the front and center of people's minds, where this greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced ought to be. And for like a few weeks, it seems that it is, and then it goes again. But the thing about the climate crisis is it doesn't go away. It just builds and it builds and it builds. And even when it's building quietly, in other words, when we're not seeing the massive fires and the floods and the heat domes and um, the catastrophes which you know come up every every few weeks now even when that's not happening it's still building and it's still there and it's not going away and it's an existential crisis it's the greatest existential crisis we've ever faced because it's a collapse of our life support systems and you know we we, we come back from wars and we come back from famines and we come back from genocide and horrendous as all these things are, you know, we, we can eventually pick ourselves up and rebuild. We don't come back from the collapse of our life support systems. And the immense frustration of my career has been banging my head against that brick wall and getting so little interest in it, uh, stimulating so little concern and, and actually just getting massive hostility, particularly from the editors of broadcast programmes who hate this agenda because it's counter-aspirational, but indeed from a great deal of the media, much of which, you know, and thinking particularly Telegraph, Spectator, Mail, Express, um, have poured resources into climate denial, climate delay, 
um, um, climate downplaying, whatever you want to call it, has various different varieties, um, basically to stop action from being taken. And, and, you know, I think one day we'll look back at them and see them as quislings. We'll see them as, as traitors to humanity, climate quislings who, who are basically fighting for the other side, fighting for, for the side of, of destruction. But, you know, while it's happening, they think they're very clever and they're very proud of themselves with all these specious points they're making. Um, but, you know, it, it's been absolutely devastating. I hold the media as responsible for climate breakdown as I hold the fossil fuel companies. Amen. Um, John Calvin on Patreon, um, one of our supporters who keeps this project going, says, please ask George whether he thinks that ultimately within a capitalist system, we can only tinker with things and real change in regards to the environment can only happen if we realign our values to a more socially aware, inclusive society where production and profit are superseded by policies that have people and planet at their heart. And that does actually make me think of when you went on uh, Frankie Boyle's programme on the BBC and said the problem is capitalism and got a big round of applause. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's um, um, within this system, which is a system that depends on perpetual growth on a finite planet. Uh, the growth in turn depends on those who have got disposable incomes being induced to spend more and more on more and more crap they don't need. Um, that, that system inexorably tends towards catastrophe. It, it's hard to see it doing anything other than that. And it's a system based on a whole series of, of weird misconceptions and mythic creations, you know, from John Locke's labour theory of property, which is frankly insane. I mean, it really is as mad as any column you'd find in The Spectator. That's how mad it is. Um, to the whole notion of equality before the law when, you know, so much law is tied up with property. I mean, everything about it is based on myth. It's just one layer of myth built upon another. And, you know, you can only maintain a mythic structure for so long. And eventually it's, it's it, that, that defiance of gravity can't be sustained. Um, uh, so one of the ways I try to express what I think we need instead is with the phrase private sufficiency, public luxury. Because one of the myths of capitalism, one of those myths which float above the earth, is, is that we can all aspire to private luxury. We can all be um, Jeff Bezos or, or Bill Gates one day. We're all temporarily embarrassed millionaires or billionaires. Um, and one day it's going to be us. Of course, you know, it's complete bollocks because the only reason that they can be where they are is through accumulating the, the labor um, and the resources of other people. Um, and, and it's, uh, and, you know, what we call enterprise so often when you stand back from it just turns out to be looting in effect, you know, as you can see from Bezos's appalling labor practices within Amazon, but you could also see from the entire history of the capitalist period within Europe, where, you know, Britain, for instance, extracted in today's money, $45 trillion worth of wealth from India, which it then used to colonize, and capture other nations, um, extracting even more wealth from them. It's just, it's just looting, it's theft. Um, but, you know, we dress it up as business as enterprise. So obviously everybody can't be a millionaire because 
being a millionaire depends on other people being in poverty. But let's just say for the sake of argument, everybody could. Let's say that we could all become tremendously rich and we could all have that yacht and that supercar and those five homes scattered around the world um, and and eat caviar and tuna and the rest of it. Um, what would be the outcome? Well, we would just burst through all the planetary boundaries within days. We would completely destroy what remains of our life support systems. It, it's totally impossible, even in terms of space. I mean, if everybody... In, in London, tried to have their own tennis court and their own swimming pool and their own art collection and their own playground for their kids and the other things that millionaires have, London would probably cover half of England. England would cover most of Europe. Europe would cover more than the surface of the planet, you know, if, if that's how we tried to live. And the only way, that the only reason why some people can pursue private luxury is that other people can't. Physically and ecologically, there's not enough space for that. So while I think, you know, we should all be entitled to private sufficiency, you know, our own space and some of our own things and, you know, enough to, to, to maintain that sense of, of self and, and, and of independence, at the same time, the pursuit of luxury should take place in the public sphere. Great public parks, great public tennis courts, great public swimming pools and public art galleries and public transport and public health and public education. All the, all the places where we want to expand and, and seek luxury, that should be in the public domain. And when you do it in the public domain, instead of shutting people out, as you do with your private pursuit of luxury, building the walls around your mansion and keeping everybody out, you create space for people. You know, a great public park has created space for anyone who wants to use it. And you massively reduce the ecological impact of, of creating that luxury because it's shared luxury. So private sufficiency, public luxury, I think is part of the, the, the deep solution to our ecological and climate crisis. So what are the critiques that, again, those of us on the left who support radical measures to deal with the climate crisis and also uh, to have a, a just transition. So a, a, you know, so the idea of a transition that isn't about terrible sacrifice on the back of the poor, but actually improving people's living standards is that we are watermelons, that we are green, on, that we are uh, uh, green on the outside, red on the inside, that we are using a, we're piggybacking on a crisis in order to, uh, further our real aims, which is an anti-capitalist agenda, when actually the government would go, well, look, actually, we've done a great job. Emissions have fallen by 29% over a decade. The work, the Britain is a world leader uh, without having abandoned or challenged capitalism in any way. What would you, what would you say to that? Well, like you, I've never tried to disguise my my, my <laughs> left leanings. Um, it would be slightly fatuous to try to do so. Um, but, you know, it's very hard to see how you can separate questions of environmental justice from questions of social justice. I mean, when you look at the extraordinary distribution of emissions, you know, how, how 1% of the world's people uh, are, are, are producing half of the greenhouse gas emissions, worldwide. I mean, that, that's, that's an issue of justice. It's an issue of social justice completely and inextricably mingled with environmental justice. And inequality um, makes it 
uh, much much harder to to um, engineer a just transition and to ensure that we can get through this crisis while sustaining general prosperity and keeping our life support systems in the state that they can continue to to support us um, and and so it's just it's really hard to see how we can have any sort of environmental transition without an economic transition, a redistributive economic transition. So, yeah, I couldn't give a flying fuck what they call me. You know, I really couldn't. You know, I get called a champagne socialist. I'm not. I'm a, I'm a cider environmentalist. <laughs> but, yeah, actually, I don't care you know, because it's just like, these are the issues. Here it is. You know, if you want to get out of this crisis, here's the route out. All the rest is hand-waving. We're not going to do it any other way. I'm a Prosecco socialist, but yeah. Um, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> now, on social media, one of my, I suppose, my happy safe space is Instagram. Um, on Twitter, it's... But on Instagram, everyone's very lovely. But there is one exception when I have upset people. And that is when I posed just a little breakfast and there was some salmon on my plate. And it antagonised people, who then, a lot of them, left a lot of messages, very passionately asking me to watch Sea Spiracy. Mm. So I'm just wondering, you've got, because there's a bit of controversy over Seaspiracy, which I know you, you commented on, but what's your, in terms of that, in terms of, I mean, this is more broadly a project you've been particularly working on. How do we feed the world without mm. devouring the planet? We are going through the sixth major extinction in the history of the Earth. The last one, of course, was the extermination of the dinosaurs. So, yeah, what's your, I mean, that was a lot, but uh, fish, uh, you know, so, so long and, etc but so the fish issue but more generally how do we feed how do we feed humanity uh without without around the planet well i'm very glad you asked me that because as it happens i've just written a book about that subject so whoa isn't that amazing smoothly and definitely spooky which is which is um coming out in may um and 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 it is i think the the biggest question of all now it is the biggest question of all, because if we can't resolve it, we are totally screwed because food production by a very long way is the primary cause of ecological destruction on just about every level in terms of land use, habitat destruction, species destruction. One of the major causes of, of greenhouse gas emissions, water pollution, um, a large cause of air pollution. You just one issue after another. It's it's there. It's right at the center. And then, of course, the unbelievably appalling way in which we treat animals you know whether it's chickens pigs cows salmon whatever it might be it's just disgusting you know it's another of those things where future generations will look back and say what were they doing what did they think they were playing at yeah it's just like like it would be inconceivable to people in the future that we could sort of pack a hundred thousand chickens into a barn and and rear them in six weeks so that they got so fat so quickly that they'd topple forward onto their chests and they they could scarcely move i mean it, it's it's so revolting and you look at the salmon circulating in these cages covered in lesions i mean in some cases literally falling apart while they're still alive chunks falling off them i mean it's macabre it's like a horror film and then of course you know the impact of the feed the salmon are being fed on fish which are scooped up by super trawlers which also scoop up all the dolphins the 
they're then dosed with um, um, uh, medicines and toxins to try to kill all the sea lice which eat, are eating the salmon alive and that kills all the rest of the life in the sea lock um, and then you know we look at what's going on in the chicken sheds where you know the, i mean it's so disgusting it's so revolting um inside the shed and then outside the shed when they farmers dispose of the dung they spread it over the land and it all goes into the rivers and kills them as well and so there's just this whole chain of consequences absolutely devastating particularly from animal agriculture um and of course the feed growing for the animals you know the soya across vast tracts of south america brazil argentina the forests the savannas the dry woodlands felled on an enormous scale to produce that feed i mean it's just like it's a it's a global catastrophe and we need to be looking at entirely new ways of feeding ourselves and luckily well um, you need to watch your space to some extent but they 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 do exist there's some really really interesting uh, new technologies coming forward where we can use a tiny fraction of the land footprint no animal exploitation whatsoever and 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 feed ourselves you know with he healthily and cheaply which you know is another aspect of this you know so many people keep saying oh well the answer the problem is cheap food that's the problem well i, I i've I visit the local food bank quite, quite, quite often and talk to people there. You, you know, and I've asked them. I said, you know, what, what do you think when people say the problem is cheap food and they just laugh? They said they're, they're taking the mick. They must be mad, you know. And so, you know, it's got to be cheap. It's got to be healthy, and it's got to be produced in ways which don't trash the living planet. But at the moment, because we haven't come to grips with this, eating is a minefield. Yeah, every time you think you're doing the right thing, someone will come along and say, um, actually, yeah, and, you know, that's not fair on anyone. You know, it's not fair on the people doing the eating, let alone the people at the other end of the chain who are suffering the consequences. So, you know, we've just got to massively change the whole system. And I think we are in a position to do that. But, you know, it'll need massive campaigning to generate the political will. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Water, rivers, rivers specifically. This is a big project you're working on um, in terms of what's happening to our rivers. Rivers, yeah. I know you've put it, been turned into, into open sewers. Just tell us a bit about this and this, what, you, yeah. what you've been working on on this. So, yeah, we just um, last week um, um, broadcast this 
completely insane project called Riverside, which is the world's first live investigative documentary. And I mean, this it was just such a massive logistical and technical nightmare, you can imagine, because we're actually trying to find things out in real time, various locations, linking to people around the country, traveling by boat, by car, by on, on foot. And amazingly, miraculously, it came together. So, so you can see it on YouTube now, Riverside with a C, so, so C-I-D-E, as in the death of rivers. Um, and, and what we've discovered, again, it, it comes back to this issue that while you know, all eyes have been on sewage pollution, and quite rightly too, because the privatised water companies disgustingly have been cutting their costs by pouring their raw sewage into the rivers. So the rivers are just like they're awash with with shit with your human excrement with 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 all the sanitary products and things which get flushed down and all the toxins which go go with it it's totally disgusting classic case of privatized companies cutting their costs by literally dumping on the rest of us but while we've all been focused on that actually it turns out that even that is not the biggest cause of river pollution and the biggest cause is those industrial livestock units, those massive, uh, I suppose we should call them factories, in which there might be hundreds of dairy cows or thousands of pigs or tens of thousands of chickens, um, where you get a massive amount of nutrients from a very wide area in the form of the soya harvested from Brazil and Argentina or um, uh, whatever else it might be feeding those animals packed into this very narrow area poured through the chickens or the pigs or the cows, they then shit it out. And the nutrients in that shit, there's far too many of them for the land to absorb. So when farmers spread them, it's as if they were just pumping them straight into the river because the first rain that comes along just washes them straight off the land and into the river. And so we we based this, um, so, so last week when when we, we made the live broadcast, uh, you know, you can still watch it even though it was, it was, it was, done live um we we did it on the banks of the river why and this is like the most protected river there could be it's got every single conservation designation and it's literally dying in front of our eyes i mean it's gone from being a thriving ecosystem within about five years to being on the verge of total ecological collapse and and the fundamental change is is these massive beds of crowfoot water crowfoot which is this weed very thick weed which lives in the river which is the equivalent of mangroves in a tropical sea it's where all the breeding happens and all the shelter happens so all the insects and the fish and the rest of it the young ones they totally depend on the shelter which these huge thick beds of weed give them and and the adults they all hide in it as well and that has been completely wiped out, almost. We, we, we reckon up to 97% of it has gone in the past three years. It's just been cleansed from the river by this pollution. And then loads of other species have been directly wiped out by the pollution, as well as by the loss of the crowfoot. And so this, basically, the river has just died. And we're seeing the same in river after river after river, as they've been overloaded with nutrients, which stimulates the growth of these um, microscopic algae, which make the water thick and soupy and disgusting, cuts out the light, kills the crowfoot and the other water weeds, sucks oxygen out of the water at night, kills everything else. And, and it's just like, you know, we all love rivers. You know, nobody thinks polluting them is a good idea. And yet we're doing it and we're losing them almost overnight. In ecological terms, it's a 
blink of an eye and they're going one after another bang 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 caused by pig units caused by chicken units caused by dairy cows you know we've got this benign image of farming and it comes from the books we read when we're very very young children it comes from country file you know if bbc was any keener on sheep it would be illegal and 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 we're given this sort of pastoral idyll you know this is what farming is all about that is not what farming is not where our food comes from it really isn't you know i mean the, you know those the farmers they 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 feature on country file with these beautiful twee bucolic images they do they never tell you how they make their living right. you know there's no almost no livestock farmer um, with livestock outdoors in this country who makes their living from livestock farming. They make it from subsidies. They make it in front of their computer filling out forms, but they never tell you that. And then they, they don't tell you that almost all the meat you eat and almost all the eggs you eat, I mean, you know, we're talking high 90s percent, comes from these massive factories with huge numbers of animals all packed together in disgusting conditions and dosed with antibiotics and other drugs. That's where it really comes from. And they give us a completely misleading impression of what's really going on in the countryside. All this bucolic nonsense, this romantic, twee, aesthetic bollocks, you know, it's just got nothing to do with the realities of what we're eating. So we're perennially and systematically misled by the BBC, among others, and I have to say also by the Guardian and Observer, who you know who really haven't got to grips with these issues properly. I mean, they've done some great work on intensive um, um, livestock and stuff, but also um, continue to um, put out misleading material about, um, for for example, um, uh, ranching of, of cattle and sheep, where it's just you know things which simply aren't true. Get into the paper, and we've really got to sort that out. This is jumping around a bit, but I'm, I'm really interested, not least given some comments this week. It's about long COVID. Now, you have, you, you, you've been a sufferer of long COVID. And this week, Robert Dingwall, who is a member of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, he's a sociologist, I believe. Uh, but he essentially said long COVID's anecdotal, a segment of the sufferer's imagination. They were condemned by, amongst others, Professor Christina Pagel, who's a senior expert on all things related to COVID, who said... Evidence is overwhelming and well-documented. He's gaslighting the million-plus Britons living with it um, and, and said he's got no place questioning the government on COVID if he's questioning really questioning reality. So just tell me your, your experience on, on long COVID. No, I know you've written, you wrote a brilliant column about it as well. Um, just in terms of how long COVID's being treated and what, what it tells mm -hmm. us, I suppose, about the pandemic that, alas, we yeah. are still enduring. So, so my experience was pretty mild by comparison to so many people's. I, I had it for 14 weeks. It was frightening. You know, I've had a lot of illnesses because of my work in the tropics and um, not taking great care when I was when I was younger. But but this this was as frightening as any of them, really, partly because I just for so long I felt I couldn't breathe. I was just like really fighting for breath and every breath was was an effort and you know it's a sense of, of suffocating it felt like drowning it was really really scary uh but i i seemed to come out of it soon after i had my first vaccination so that that maybe just boosted my immune system and got me out of it but then there are so many people who haven't got out of it and a lot of the symptoms of long covid are very similar to the symptoms of mecfs which is a disease which similarly to that bloke you're talking about has been maligned and misrepresented on an industrial scale 
interestingly, it wasn't always the case. It wasn't really until 1970 when this extraordinary paper was published in the British Medical Journal um, by these researchers who had never interviewed any patients or any doctors um, with people suffering from post-viral syndromes. Um, but they concluded on the basis that some 80% of those people are women because it does disproportionately affect women, both long COVID and METFS. They concluded on that basis and that basis alone that this was mass hysteria. It wasn't a real um, syndrome. There wasn't anything actually wrong with the people. It was all in their minds because it was predominantly women. And, and that is how women's medicine has so often been treated. You know, it's just, it's not science, it's misogyny. And, and misogyny has so often governed the complete failure to invest properly in diseases predominantly affecting women and this sort of almost knee-jerk reflex which says it can't be true it can't be right just because if it's mostly women suffering from it well you know they're not rational are they you know they 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 must be making it up now as it happens i've got two um, old friends with mecfs both of them women who were the most active engaged people who embrace life, who just had so many plans and ambitions and were doing so much with their lives. And suddenly, following a virus, both of them, bang, got knocked down. And they are so desperate to get on their feet. They would give anything, anything to get out of their beds and, and get on with, with their lives, with their work, with their children, with all the things they want to engage in. But they're literally, much of their lives, they're lying on their backs, staring at the ceiling because that's all they're capable of doing. And now they're being told, you're malingerous. This is a fake illness. It's not happening to you. Um, it's all in your head. I mean, talk about gaslighting. This is the, the definitive example of gaslighting. But there's a, a group of 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 in some cases, quite eminent professors, mostly men, who have been putting this idea around that it's all fake. And it's and, and it sort of builds on itself because um, um, the, the Department of Work and Pensions has been promoting their work because then it can get out of paying disability benefits and say, well, you're just scroungers, you're just skivers and malingerers. And the medical insurance companies, they love them too because they don't have to pay out if it's all in the head. And so it becomes self-perpetuating. I think it's one of the greatest medical scandals of the last century, yeah. the way um, that, that this massive illness or series of illnesses or post-viral syndromes, of which MECFS is, is a major one, but, but not the only one, have been denied and downplayed. It's just like climate denial. It's really yeah. similar. It's yeah. very similar rhetoric. Sometimes the same people involved, especially the people at the Science Media Centre, some of whom came out of the Living Marxism Network, yeah. um, who who were fighting culture wars long before anyone knew what a culture war was, yeah. and had a slogan which is that you, you should not listen to the victim, and 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 suddenly they find themselves in this position of communicating science, and they manage somehow to sort of through their vanguardism, their entryism to occupy all these key positions in the communication of science and have managed to steer the debate in, in that way. It's it's deeply disturbing. There's a couple of other things I've, I really wanted to, to run by you. And one one is about the history of British colonialism, which is something you've, again, written about extensively. Um, I think I read long ago, um, Britain's last 
uh, sorry, the, was it Britain's Gulag? I can't remember. It was mm. about the British suppression of the Myanmar uprising. Because I remember I, re- I read it because of a column you wrote many years mm. ago. Um, and that was, it's a classic example of a uh, sordid episode in British colonial history. It was in Kenya in the 1950s when uh, um, there was an uprising against colonial rule. Members of the Kikuyu tribe were imprisoned en masse, huge atrocities committed. Few spoke out at the time. Bizarrely, the two most prominent voices were Barbara Castle and Enoch Powell, somewhat bizarre. <laughs> um, but, but that was what, and another is, is, uh, is uh, um, again, a brilliant book, Late Victorian Holocaust, which was about mm. the, the famines in India under colonial rule. Millions and millions died. The last famine, of course, under Winston Churchill, three million died in Bengal. Mm. We just haven't, there is no discussion mm. proper of any description, even now, about the history of, the crimes of British colonialism. And I think Black Lives Matter has opened up something now uh, of at least the chance of a conversation. So I'm just wondering, you know, what does it say about us that that now, that debate, that just was not a debate. I mean, that discussion is just so suppressed. Polling on the British Empire is pretty depressing. Public opinion mm. is more favourable than not. But we don't, that's because no one's educated about it, about the reality. Yeah, yeah. So how far are we from that meaningful mm. coming to terms? Is it ever going to be possible? Or is it only when a nation is defeated in war where they're forced to confront the crimes committed in their, mm. by their rulers in the name of, of, of the people? It is an amazing thing, isn't it? Where, you know, we've still got this idea that the purpose of the British Empire was to teach the natives English and double entry bookkeeping and table manners. Um, and, and all the, all the looting, all the slavery, all the theft of land, indeed of entire nations, of the resources, all the killing, all the mutilation, the torture of the sort which went on in those concentration camps, that's what they were in Kenya in the 1950s, which bore a remarkable similarity, as even one of the authors of the program acknowledged, to the Nazi concentration camps, you know, which um, we were congratulating ourselves, having liberated, uh, you know, never again, we've defeated barbarism, We, we replicated it in Kenya in the 1950s. In fact, one of the camps, the Ingenya concentration camp, had the words work and freedom over the gates. Mm. <laughs> it's just, I mean, you could not believe this, but mm. because these were black people, it didn't matter. You could do what you wanted. You know, it's just like they, they weren't people. Yeah, you know, it, it was, it, you could you could simply pretend this was something different to what the Nazis were doing because, you know, I mean, how could you be concerned about black people? That, 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 that was, that seemed to be the attitude. Now, interestingly, and you can really see sort of how power is transmitted in this country. The um, the man um, who who ran this program and indeed instituted it, Sir Evelyn Baring, is the uh, was the the grandfather-in-law of Dominic Cummings, um, the grandfather of of one of the associate editors of of the Spectator, Cummings's um, um, wife. And um, the man who then implemented much of it in Kenya and indeed in Malaya and and in Cyprus um, and elsewhere um, was Dido Harding's grandfather. Now, I'm not blaming Cummings or Mary Wakefield or Dido Harding at all for any of their ancestors. Of course not. But, you know, the way they got their positions was by simply being part of the gilded circle. You know, Cameron 
taps up his friend Dido Harding, who had a long record of failure in the commercial sector, um, and and put her in the House of Lords. Now, he's not going to just go along to anyone randomly and tap them up and put them in the House of Lords. He's going to put someone, a friend of his, who's in that gilded circle in the House of Lords, and she's in that gilded circle because of what her grandfather did. He raised the social position of the family um, in into the upper echelon by being a great servant of empire, for which he got um, the um, uh, that uh, medal with the white angel stamping on the neck of a black man. What is it? The um, KCMG, the Cross of, of St. Michael and St. George. That's the one. Um, which Sir Evelyn Baring also got, incidentally, the same the, the same medal, uh, white angel stamping on the neck of a black black devil. Um, and um, and and so. You know, you're then in a position to get tapped up, first of all, to go into the House of Lords. Secondly, to run the test and trace program, even when you've um, failed upwards in, in the other things that you've done. And boy, by, my God, did she, has she failed on test and trace? Similarly, um, you know, uh, Mary Wakefield, Dominic Cummings, you know, they've been elevated by ancestral positions and ancestral positions, which as so often in, in, in this country, you know, of, of established hierarchies, um, were created by the most gross crimes against other human beings, be it the slave trade or the ownership of slaves, um, be it um, um, colonial looting, be it the enclosure movement, um, either in Ireland or, or, or the clearances in Scotland or the enclosures in England. You know, it, it's almost true, not quite, but almost, that behind every great fortune lies a great crime. And under the Conservatives... It's almost true that behind every position of high office lies a great crime. Just finally, uh, we've lived through the greatest peacetime emergency, I suppose, of the modern era. Um, three times as many people have died um, because of COVID-19 than, than were killed in the Blitz. Mm. Um it's about one in every 450 people or so died of COVID-19 mm. uh, since the pandemic began. One of the worst death tolls on the face of the earth and with a public health crisis, which has been so catastrophically handled, the economic consequences are therefore more severe because, of course, uh, a public health crisis is the economic crisis, not the measures to suppress it. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've seen devastating human social consequences because of the government's abject failures, which Dominic Cummings, who you've just mentioned, uh, who is both one of the architects, but also has has become for whatever motives are um, one of the kind of chief whistleblowers of. But they 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 kind of got away with it, haven't they? I mean, they, their polling is, is good. The media, you know, I mean, if this was a Labour government that had overseen this of any stripe, frankly, I think we can only imagine the way the media would have approached it. And frankly, the opposition has just abdicated its responsibilities. The Labour Party has completely failed to make this stick. And actually, they say, well, you know, oh, the people's vaccination bounce it doesn't seem to affect the French government, whose polling has fallen, the Italian government, the German government, the Spanish government. Trump obviously didn't win the election. I mean, that was before the vaccine. But again, this is all people rallying behind the government in a national emergency. So I suppose it's twofold, really. How, I mean, you know, is there any optimism? Because many would think, well, if they can, if a government can get away with this, they can essentially get away with absolutely yeah. 
anything and what hope does that leave anyone and what on earth what on earth does that leave the british labor party in any prospects for political change in any meaningful direction in this country yeah well it's certainly grim um for all the reasons you say and you know there is something very weird about britain very weird you know where we are so comprehensively and serially misled by the billionaire press by Murdoch, by the surviving Barclay brother, by Lord Rothermere, and all the very clever, very intelligent people who work for them, you know, people that they have appointed in their own image to be their representatives on earth, and to put out the messages that they want put out in ways cleverer than they could conceive. Um, and so we have this peculiar domination by billionaires um, and generally the billionaires interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the great majority of people for all sorts of obvious reasons um, but we we also yeah, are just very poorly served by the fundamental structure of our political system now as jeremy gilbert points out the fundamental problem with the labor party is it's two parties forced into one by mm. our first past the post electoral system mm. so whether you call them starmerites or corbynites it, you know, it doesn't matter what names you give them they can't live at peace together and they can't create a coherent and effective political force because they are entirely different political forces and in any other nation they would be separate forces and they would campaign set there would be different parties they would campaign separately they might come together and form uneasy coalitions which you know in modern societies that's what you do but first past the post forces them into this completely chaotic alliance which constantly leads to the party caving in from within and um, and so, you know, Corbyn was constantly fighting the right of his party. Keir Starmer seems to have started a war with the left of his party. I mean, it, it's inevitable. It's just going to happen. The internecine struggle is going to happen because, you know, they're not fundamentally the same party. They are they are two or more parties crammed together under one flag, and this is layered on top of the yeah you know, really crazy presumptions of our system so for example you know a government will be elected after 35 percent of the adult population or so votes for it it'll then say we have a mandate to do whatever we want for the next five years because on one day a third of the population put a cross on a piece of paper and that then says we can do what we want um, we can do everything that's in the manifesto, though how what percentage of the po population read the manifesto? You know, probably way less than 1%. We can do everything that's not in the manifesto. We can disregard the manifesto if we want. We can add to the manifesto. We can rip the manifesto up. We can suddenly come up with something completely crazy. We can respond to any event in any way we want because we presume that you have consented to it. Now, we don't accept the principle of presumed consent in sex, why should we accept it in politics? Why should we accept this extraordinary idea that because some people on one day put a cross on a piece of paper for the next five years, you can do what the hell you want. Yeah. This is insanity. Yeah. And, and today in the digital era, when there's so many ways of making participatory and deliberative democracy a reality, the idea that still in this political system symbolized by the emblem of parliament which is a portcullis 
with a crown on top and chains on either side, if ever there was an emblem which said, keep out, you're not welcome here, that is it. You know, we are totally stuck in a previous political era. And as a result, we can't move on. You know, it's not just the Conservatives at fault. It's not just Labour at fault. It's not just the the the, the, the billionaire press at fault. Though all of them are in spades. It's a fundamental structure of the political system that's at fault. And what we need is not just a change of government. Obviously, we need a change of government and we need a radical change of government. And, you know, you and I, we united in, in you know, strongly wanting Jeremy Corbyn to be in power, though with some, some caveats, you know, conditional support, but then support should always be conditional. Yeah. You know, otherwise, you become a cipher. But, yeah, and, you know, being very disappointed in what has replaced Jeremy Corbyn. But, you know, it's much, much deeper than that. It's a much bigger problem than that. It's it's first past the post politics. It's presumed consent. It's it's the the assumption of the royal prerogative by the prime minister. I mean, we're living in such a sclerotized, hidebound, dysfunctional political system. How could anyone expect anything good to come out of it? George, it's been an absolute honour. Um, I think we've, I think we've covered, I think all of the key issues actually. So that's 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 the future of humanity saved, which is a relief because I was beginning to get a little worried about that. Uh, but it was such such a pleasure. I mean, as as everyone who's either watching or listening to this can see, the breadth of your knowledge and expertise and wisdom is truly expansive. And we're very lucky to have had some of your valuable time to join uh, with us today. So thank you so so much, and uh, and long may you thrive. Thanks, Owen. Thank you so much. We we didn't actually cover any, everything because I didn't get to talk about woodpeckers, but maybe another oh, day. Well, next time we're doing woodpeckers, <laughs> next time okay? We're doing woodpeckers. woodpeckers. <laughs> That's it. Entire video. That's Cheers, a keystone George. species in old growth forests. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the headline headline for the next show. You were you can say that, but there will be several complaints about our failure to address them. There will, there, there, and there will be complaints. If we did talk about woodpeckers, there'd also be complaints because we talk about the great spotted as opposed to the green woodpecker or something. You know, and it's like <laughs> the green woodpecker faction would be infuriated. <laughs> I mean, there is an angry faction representing every every, every uh, particular issue. So I, you joke, but. Yep, they will be antagonised. Uh, <laughs> George, it's a big honour, and I can't, can't wait to see you in the flesh uh, sometime soon. But, uh, Fantastic. Lots of love and cheers. Thanks, Owen. So lovely to talk. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you got a lot out of that. I certainly did. Um, do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. Help us decide which documentaries we do, who we speak to, that kind of thing. Or use the support function uh, to keep the team uh, doing their amazing work um, I will speak to you soon uh, take care lots of love